Hey folks, if you will join me this morning, I'd like to uh, read some scripture. If you have a Bible with you, uh, whether that's your Bible or iPad or whatever, that's fine. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 15 to 20 from Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation this morning. Follow along in whatever you've got there. This is a, a passage uh, just purely about Jesus. Uh, the supremacy, incredibleness, like a clear picture of who Jesus is. And as Chris comes to speak this morning, he's going to talk uh, a little bit about this passage. So as you're finding it, Colossians chapter 1, the heart here in verse 11 is that you'd be filled with joy. And that's uh, verse 13, because Jesus has rescued us. He purchased our freedom. He forgave our sins. And then, and then who is this Jesus? Here's the, the picture of Jesus. Verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and He's supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Everything from thrones to kingdoms to rulers, authorities, even in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is His body, and He is the beginning and supreme over all that will rise from the dead. He is first in everything. For God, in all of His fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through Him, God reconciled everything to Himself and made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by, by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. And look at verse 21. This includes you who were once far from God. Great picture of the clarity of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. Can we just pray? Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, what a clear picture of Jesus, the spectacular one, rescuing us, reaching and including us. Well, we've gathered today for no other reason but to be in your presence with like-minded people because we want to know you. We want to know your presence and your power. We want to glorify you. Whether we're online or sitting in the room, it doesn't matter. God, we ask that you will surround us with your love and your beauty. We thrive on your grace and your forgiveness. So today, let us see that clearly. So no matter what's going on in our lives right now, some of us are healthy and some are sick and some are tired and some are worn out and lonely. Some are just hanging on by the skin of our teeth and some are living our best days. Uh, God, would you meet each of us and every one of us complete, un completely uniquely now? Meet us in our place of need. And, and no matter where we are or what's going on, God, this is my ask. Would you give us the understanding and the drive to know you more? To walk with you at the center of our lives and allow your spirit to do his work of transform transformation in us. I'd love us. I'd love it if we all left after this having been challenged and changed because of your work. Jesus, have your way in us now. Our eyes and our ears and our hearts are open. And as Chris comes to speak this morning, use his words to let us see Jesus. And through Chris's words, uh, may we be enthusiastically pushed to run to Jesus. Help us see clearly the richness of life completely centered on you. Speak through Chris. Speak directly to our hearts and our souls and change us as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. So Pastor Dave has just read the scripture and has just prayed for us. And I feel like that's a really appropriate uh, launching uh, place for our new teaching series 
that we're beginning right now called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm not very good at perceiving optical illusions. Maybe you've seen this one. Uh, this, is, this is an oldie, this one. This was created, I think, in the 1800s and was published in 1915 under the heading, My Wife and My Mother-in-Law, They Are Both in This Picture. So I remember seeing this picture for the first time in elementary school. Our teacher uh, showed it to us and told us that there are indeed two phases, two images, two women here, one younger and one older, and can we find them? And I remember looking at it and immediately seeing the younger woman, or the wife, as it is in the title. And uh, she's looking over, uh, she's quite graceful, looking over her right shoulder, but I couldn't see the, the older woman or the mother-in-law. Uh, I couldn't see that. And I began to feel some pressure because uh, kids in, uh, in, in the class with me, all of a sudden they're going, oh, I see them both, or I see the young lady and I see the old lady. And, and I couldn't see the old lady. And I remember feeling some pressure that, that I wasn't able to do that. Uh, well, I, I since have been able to see the old uh, woman in the picture, the mother-in-law. Of course, the, the, the jawline of the young woman is part of the nose of the older woman. The ear of the young woman is the eye of the, the mother-in-law. The, the, the uh, necklace of the, of the wife, the young woman, is the mouth of the older woman. Perhaps you've seen uh, these. This is commonly called a magic eye image. Uh, there's a lot of these. Uh, some of you may have books of these, maybe like coffee table books with all kinds of images like this. Uh, at first glance, these look like just kind of a mis uh, mash of, of color and kind of indiscriminate, maybe even blurry objects that lack depth and really seem to lack connection, but if you learn to adjust your focus in a particular way, there are 3D images that will just pop out of the picture. Um, in all honesty, I have never, ever seen one of these 3D images uh, pop out for me until this week. In fact, this past Monday in the office, I was looking at one of these. We had kind of Googled how to do it. You kind of put your nose close to the image and then pull the image away from you. And uh, if you uh, adjust your focus just so, then these 3D images will pop out. And this image I actually was able to see. This is a baseball scene. And if you uh, adjust your focus just right, you can see a uh, a baseball player crouched down, about to catch the ball, and uh, there's a, a an opposing player sliding headfirst into the bag, and it uh, you know it's a bit of a uh, a bit of guesswork as to whether the catcher will catch the ball in time to tag the runner or whether the runner will be safe. It looks like it's going to be pretty close, but it's a very very clear image that just pops out of the scene. My hope. And my prayer for this series is that with God's help, we will learn to adjust our focus to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And as amazed as I was this past week to be able to see this 3D image just pop out and I was pretty excited. I ran around the office saying, hey, I've had a breakthrough. And people were looking at me like, oh, that's weird. Um, I was excited by that, but I'll tell you, far more exciting to be able to look at the Old Testament and to see Jesus. It's an incredible thing. And so my hope and my prayer is that, you know, for many of us, we will more and more be able to see Jesus in that way in the Old Testament. Uh, your Bibles, I think, are open still, I hope. Uh, you're in Colossians chapter 1. Let's go ahead and turn to Luke's gospel. If you can find chapter 24, Luke chapter 24. Once you find Luke 24, uh, find your way down to verse 13. Uh, this is a great story. 
It's kind of a long story. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're not going to put the whole thing on the screen. We'll put some of it on the screen, but I'll maybe describe some of the story, some of the context. So uh, in verse 13, Luke 24, 13, here we meet uh, two disciples of Jesus, not part of the 12, but part of the other larger group of disciples of Jesus. And they're walking home from Jerusalem to their hometown, which is called Emmaus. It's about an 11 kilometer walk for them. So wherever you are, think of a place about 11 kilometers from you. That's roughly the walk that these to have from Jerusalem to Emmaus. For me, here at the church building, uh, an 11 kilometer walk might be uh, me walking up the highway to the Tim Hortons in Hepworth, probably somewhere in the vicinity of an 11 kilometer walk. It's a pretty good hike. These two are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They are sad. They are dejected, despondent, dispirited. They're really down. They've left Jerusalem very shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, only they don't know about the resurrection. They didn't stick around Jerusalem long enough to learn about the resurrection. And so they're walking home. They had put all their hope in Jesus. All their hope was in Jesus. But he's arrested, he's tortured, he's executed, and he's buried. And all of their hopes are buried with dead Jesus. And so they're despondent. And so what happens is the risen Christ shows up and he begins to walk alongside them on this road to Emmaus. In fact, Jesus says, this is verse 17. Jesus said, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And, uh, you know, if we could paraphrase Jesus there, it would be maybe something like, you know, why the long faces? What has got you so sad that you're having this really sad conversation with each other? In fact, Luke uh, gives us a hint of their posture here. He says, they stood still, their faces downcast. And so uh, these two sad disciples, uh, they don't recognize who Jesus is, uh, but they answer his question with, with no small amount of indignation, I might say. It's almost like they're saying, mister, are you crazy? Are you the only one who's been in Jerusalem this weekend who doesn't know what happened? Who doesn't know that Jesus has been killed? That he's dead? We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the anointed one. All our hope was in him. We had hoped that he was the one who would expel the Roman occupiers and, and, um, and, and uh, restore Israel to her national glory. And we had hoped that he was the one who would reign uh, from the throne of David, but now he's dead. We thought he was the one, but we were wrong. And so we're going home. And so Jesus says to them in verse 25, he says, how foolish you are. Ouch. That's a stinging statement from Jesus. And he says, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Foolish and slow, not complimentary terms at all. And so in other words, Jesus is saying to these two sad disciples, you two need to learn to understand your own Bible better. And their Bible, of course, was the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament. It was the, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. And Jesus says to these two, you need to understand it better. Jesus goes on to say, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then this next statement that Jesus makes is incredible. This is verse 27. And beginning with Moses, with everything that Moses has written and said, and all the prophets, everything the prophets have said, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, the Old Testament, concerning himself. Concerning himself. In fact, later in this same chapter, in this 24th chapter, we read in verse 44, he said to them, Jesus said to them, this is to the, his, his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, notice where, in the law 
of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is Jesus simply telling his disciples that the whole uh, Hebrew Bible, the whole of the Jewish scriptures, again, what we call our Old Testament, Jesus said, it's all about him. It's all about him. Well, back to these two um, sad disciples who were walking home. Well, after Jesus tells them about himself from the Old Testament scriptures, they, they kind of look at each other and they say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Heartburn. Normally it's a bad thing. In this case, it's a good thing. This is spiritual heartburn. This is, if you will, a reflux of joy and excitement and enthusiasm because all of a sudden these two disciples, with Jesus' help, have learned to adjust their focus to see Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And these two, you know, these two disciples were, they were, they were just that, they were disciples. They loved Jesus. They uh, f- were followers of Jesus, and yet they didn't fully grasp who Jesus really was in his fullness, and they didn't fully grasp or fully understand how the scriptures were pointing to Jesus. They'd literally spent time with Jesus. They'd hung out with Jesus and without fully grasping who he was. And you know, I think, or I feel like, um, that is very likely true for many of us. You know, we are followers of Jesus. We have faith in Jesus. We say Jesus is our Savior. He's our Lord. All of our hope is in Him. And um, yet we don't necessarily fully understand all that He was and all that He is. And we don't necessarily fully understand all that the Scriptures say about Him, uh, even from the Old Testament. And so these two disciples say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. And really this is, you know, this is my, my hope and my prayer for us that we, uh, in increasing measure, and this is really a lifetime process, that we would experience this spiritual heartburn as we learn to adjust our focus to see Jesus in the Old Testament, the spiritual heartburn, to see the image of Jesus, the person of Jesus, just pop off the pages uh, to us. That's my hope and my prayer. Well, again, in uh, verse 25, Jesus had said to these two, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You know, honestly, the first time I read that verse, I felt bad for these disciples. I felt like Jesus was perhaps being a little bit too harsh with them. Like foolish is a strong word. And it's like, you know, Jesus, can't we give these guys a break? It's not every day that somebody dies and then rises again. And in all fairness, these two Jewish disciples would have grown up being taught that when the Messiah does come, he'll remain forever. The Jews had no concept of a Messiah who would die. They were taught that when the Messiah come, he would reign forever. So they had no concept of a Messiah who would die. Therefore, they had no concept of a Messiah who would rise again. And so Jesus, you know, can't we give them a, can't we give them a bit of a break here, right? I don't know about you, but man, I read the Old Testament. I read some of the prophecies. Honestly, I haven't got a clue what they're talking about. I can't understand them, at least not without tons of help from other people. And there's a lot there. And it's a really, really deep repository. So it's like, wow, to call these guys foolish, this is maybe a bit rough. But in Jesus' defense, as if he needs me to defend him, He's been telling the disciples all along exactly what was going to happen. 
It's kind of on them, really. In fact, if you go back to chapter 18 and uh, look at verses 31 to 33, here's what we read. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, this is like point blank. We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by, notice again, the prophets, Old Testament, about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. So Jesus has been telling them this all along. He's been um, you know, kind of processing uh, this with them. And he's saying it's all in scripture. Specifically, what's in the prophets about the Son of Man is this. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. So all along, Jesus has been telling them this. He's been preparing them in this. He's been mentoring them in this. So it's kind of on these two disciples. So maybe foolish and slow to believe is a pretty apt uh, description of them. There's another passage that I think is uh, uh, amazing. And this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And Peter writes concerning this salvation. So in, in, the, in the context here, he's been writing about uh, salvation in Christ. And he says concerning this salvation, the prophets, again, Old Testament, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. And so Jesus is the embodiment of the grace of God and the prophets, the Old Testament prophets are, are talking about this. So concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Look at that phrase, that's an interesting phrase, the spirit of Christ in them, in who? In the prophets. It was the spirit of Jesus himself that is working through the prophets pointing to himself. Jesus himself is embedded in this whole prophetic process. And so even with the little bit that we've looked at so far this morning, I think we have pretty good reason, pretty good motivation to want to go back to the Old Testament and see Jesus. To go back and to learn with the help of God how to adjust our focus to see Jesus, to read the Old Testament the way that Jesus does and to see him there. He says it's all about him. So... We want to be able to see Jesus right from the very beginning. And so speaking of the beginning, let's go back to the beginning. So if you've got your Bible still handy, uh, you can go back to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, even before we get back to Genesis chapter 1 while you're turning, my guess is that uh, many of us, if not all of us perhaps, could quote the first five words of Genesis 1.1. I think it's the same five words in just about all English uh, translations. In the beginning, God created. And so here it is in uh, Genesis chapter one. This is Genesis one verses one to three. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. You know, you've got your Bible open. You can just scan your eyes down the rest of this chapter. You can look down to verse six, which is day two of creation. God speaks and he creates. You can look down to verse nine, which is day three of creation and God speaks and he creates. You see that for all six days of creation in this chapter. God speaks and creates, he speaks and creates, God speaks and creates, speaks and creates, speaks and creates, speaks and creates. And I repeat that six times for effect because I want that to get in our head. God speaks and creates, and God said, and God said, and God said. And with that in mind, it's interesting to think about how John began his gospel. You see, by the time John wrote his gospel, he had learned to read the Old Testament the way that Jesus does. By the time John wrote his gospel, he had learned to 
adjust his focus and see Jesus in the Old Testament. And so John begins his gospel with these same first three words in the beginning. And so his readers, John's readers, would have immediately recognized that, would have immediately sparked some familiarity with Genesis chapter 1, and they right off the bat would have known that, okay, here is a, here's another new beginning. Here's another fresh start of some sort that John is going to write about. Here's John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With God and was God. With God and was God. So this Word is somehow distinct from God, with God, and yet at the same time, somehow also God, was God. This is actually a, a, a really important passage. Like if you ever wanted to engage in a study of the relationality of the Godhead, uh, of the triune unity, the relational oneness of Father, Son, and Spirit, um, the shalom that exists, the harmony in the Godhead. This is a pretty important passage to, to spend some time in. And so John continues on. This is verses uh, two and three. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, that is through the word, all things were made. Without him, without the word, nothing was made that has been made. In him, in the word, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And so all of this is saying that Jesus is the creative force. We look at Genesis chapter one and we see this creative energy, this creative force, that is Jesus. Jesus is the expression of God. It's through Jesus that everything is made. So keep that in mind. Keep what John is saying in mind, namely that everything that, that was made has been made through Jesus. And now let's think back again in terms of Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created. Here it is, in the beginning, God created. Often when the Bible just says God, it's kind of referring to God in a broad sense, Father, Son, and Spirit. There are other times when the word God is used more specifically to refer to God proper, to God the Father. And that may be the case here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because it, it actually does specifically mention God the Spirit um, in verse 2, right? Here's, here's verse 2. And the Spirit was hovering over the water. So in verse 1, we've got God the Father. Uh, in verse 2, we've got God the Spirit. And so the question is... Um, Where's Jesus? How do we find Jesus uh, here in this, uh, in this passage? We know he's there. We've read that in John chapter one. Uh, Pastor Dave has read from Colossians one and, and said the same thing that Jesus is there. He's the creator. So how do we see Jesus in, um, in Genesis chapter one? How's he involved in this creative process? Well, I think, I think John, um, really gives us the clue. John, in fact, gives us the clue to look at verse 3 and to take special note about how God creates and how does God actually create. He creates through word. Verse 3, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. We see that repeated in this chapter. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. If you look down to day, um, uh, verse six, which is day two, and God said. You look down to verse nine, which is day three of creation, and God said. Look down to verse 14, which is uh, day four of creation, and God said. You look down to verse 20, which is day five of creation, and God said. You look down to verse 24, which is day six of creation, and God said said, God said, God said. It's always through word that God creates. And so the word becomes emblematic of the creative energy of the entire universe that emanates out from God, calling all things into existence. And so John, when he begins his gospel, says, in the beginning was the word. 
So we've seen in Genesis, God speaks and creates, he speaks and creates, he speaks and creates, and God said, and God said, and God said, and then John says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Are my words me, or are my words separate from me? Well, I guess both could kind of be true, I suppose we could debate that. But when God has an energy that comes out from God, that energy itself, like God, is personal. This creative energy, this creative force that we see in Genesis chapter 1 is not merely some impersonal creative force. The creative energy that comes out from God, his speech, his word, his word itself is alive. His word is personal. It's not just some impersonal force. This is Jesus. This is John giving us a clue how to see Jesus here. In the beginning was the word. And God said, and God said. So Jesus is, well, he's at the very beginning. He's at the very beginning. Pastor Dave read for us from Colossians chapter one, and I wrote down some of the things that Dave read uh, from that chapter, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you look at Jesus, you see the invisible made visible. Now you can read the Old Testament and you can learn things about God, but it's kind of, you learn by looking at, at the shadows, right? And shadows can be helpful and it does require some light to create a shadow. But man, when you have Jesus, Jesus is God in living color. Jesus is God in high definition, right? It takes the invisible and makes God visible. Pastor Dave read that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. For by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. How many things? All things. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. All things, all things were created through the word of God. Here's a little um, Anabaptist, I was gonna say idiosyncrasy, but that's not the right word, um, distinctive. Here's, an, here's a little Anabaptist distinctive for you. So our, our, our church, Sobel Christian Fellowship, is part of an Anabaptist group of churches. And in Anabaptist thinking, in Anabaptist theology, when you hear the phrase or read the phrase, the word of God, the first thing an Anabaptist thinks of is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. We believe in the inspired, inerrant, an infallible word of God, and his name is Jesus. So when we hear that phrase, read that phrase, the word of God, we think of Jesus, the word, and God said, and God said, God spoke and created, spoke and created. John says in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, was God. The word created everything. And then John 1 down in verse 14 says, and the word became flesh. This is Jesus. He is the word of God. So then we think of, you know, if you're an Anabaptist, you think first of Jesus, and then you think about all of the, uh, the message of God in the Bible, and then you think about the Bible itself, the, the book. Now, I would say that um, most other Christians who are not of an Anabaptist uh, heritage or persuasion, uh, most other Christians would, would, would reverse that. And when, when they hear the phrase, the word of God, or read the phrase, the word of God, they think first of the Bible, then of the message, uh, God's message that's contained in the Bible, and then lastly, they will think of Jesus as part of that message. So as Anabaptists, we, we flip that. We think of Jesus first. And I think, I think that makes good spiritual sense. I think that's good Bible uh, to see it that way. And it's a powerful thing. It's not just semantics, you know. It's not just semantics to say that we are Jesus-centered 
as opposed to being Bible-centered. As awesome as the Bible is, it's the inspired Word of God. We're not Bible-centered. We're not Bibleians. We're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, perhaps if you uh, were tuned in to the service, you would have heard John Hand talk about how powerful it is when, when you have Jesus at the center, when you make Jesus large, and it makes all of the other things that cause us to be polarized so much smaller with Jesus at the center. Pastor Dave, when he read from Colossians, read that he, Jesus, the Word of God, is before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. So theologians would say that Jesus is not only the creator of the world, he's also the sustainer of the world. He holds the whole thing together. It's in him and it's in Jesus that we live and move and have our being. He holds all things together. The writer of Hebrews says these words in chapter one, verses one to three. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and notices through whom also he made the universe. There's Jesus as creator again. The son, this is beautiful. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things, holding everything together, by his powerful word. You know, so we've seen in Genesis 1, and Colossians 1, and John 1, and now in Hebrews 1, that there is a creative, life-giving, life-sustaining force that called the universe into existence and that continues to penetrate and to hold all things together. It's Jesus. This is Jesus. This creative force that called all things into existence at a particular point in history. That creative force is distilled into a human being. And we can look at Jesus and we can get a glimpse of God's love, of God's compassion, of God's gentleness. You know, think of it. I know it's July, but Christmas is coming and in Christmas time, we always tell the story of Jesus in the feeding trough, right? Baby Jesus in the feeding trough, wrapped in strips of his parents' underwear, scratchy hay, warm dung, cold air, animal slobber, such a humble scene. And as you look at Jesus in the feeding trough, you are getting a glimpse of the creative force that called all things into existence and holds all things together. Like, it's incredible. You track with Jesus through the Gospels and, and you see Jesus loving sinners and eating with them. You're catching a glimpse of the creative force, the eternal creative force that calls all things into existence, including you and me, and holds all things together. When you see Jesus in the New Testament, you know, telling the disciples, hey, don't tell the kids to shush, let them come. And there's kids, you know, climbing all over Jesus and he's laughing and there's kids snot in his hair. And he loves it. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. You're getting a glimpse of the eternal force that called all things into existence. When you track with Jesus through the gospels and you see him confronting the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, religious leaders who are placing onerous, heavy, burdens on the shoulders of people that shouldn't be there. You're seeing a glimpse of the one who called all things into existence. When you see Jesus in the upper room on his, on his hands and knees, washing the filthy, stinking feet of the disciples, you are catching a glimpse of the eternal creative force that called all things into existence, including you, including me. 
and who even now in this moment is holding all things together. It's Jesus. When you see Jesus on the cross, naked, covered in his own feces, brutalized, bleeding, you're catching a glimpse of the one, the eternal one, the creator who called all things into existence. It's incredible. This is Jesus. Knowing that Jesus is the creator, it matters, causes us to read scripture differently, knowing that he's the creator. It not only causes us to read scripture differently, but it causes us to read creation differently. You can almost think of it like two books. You've got the book of God's words, and you've got the book of God's works. And when we adjust our focus to see Jesus in the Old Testament as creator, well, it causes us to also focus our, our, our focus, to adjust our focus to see Jesus differently in the things that he has made in creation. See, if you, think about this. When Jesus was creating, okay, the Bible tells us that he already knew how things were going to turn out. And he was already planning to do something about it. When he's creating, he's already planning to come and to give his life because he loves us. The book of Revelation in chapter 13 and verse 8 refers to Jesus as the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Think about that. So as Jesus is creating the world, he's creating it as the one who knows that this world is going to cause him to suffer. And willingly, he has a plan to come and to willingly give his life. Ephesians 1.4 says, For he, God, chose us in him, in Jesus, when before the creation, before the creation, before the creation, he knew us. Before the, the, the creation, he had chosen us, Jew and Gentile. Before the creation, he knew you. He saw you. He knew your name. He saw me. He knew my name. Even before he created. Even before he created, he knew how it was going to go. He knew there was going to be pain, but he loves us that much that he went forward with this creation plan. Jesus says, I am the Lamb of God slain, slaughtered before the creation. You think about that. Before creation, there's no such thing as a lamb. Jesus is making this up, right? This means, this is, this is significant. This means that everything that Jesus has created, everything that we see around us in creation is secondary to us. We are of first importance to God. Everything else that Jesus has created is secondary to us. We are of first thought to God. Everything else that, that Jesus has created is, is of secondary thought. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to create, if I'm going to make people in my image and likeness, and if, if they're going to have free choice, and if this is how it's going to end up, and if I'm going to enter in as rescuer and, and, uh, and, and rescue them to show them I love them, then I am going to start creating with all of that in mind. And so everything that Jesus creates, he creates with a sense of awareness that he is going to enter into that creation as our redeemer, as our rescuer. So everything that he creates becomes like a prop, a, a, a prop to, to reveal him, to reveal his love, to reveal his redemptive purposes. Knowing that, causes us not only to read scripture differently, but to read the creation differently, looking at everything around us that Jesus has made because he's made it intentionally and specifically to reveal his love and to reveal his redemptive purposes to us. Every aspect of creation is designed to reveal 
Jesus. In his book called Jesus on Every Page, and this is a book I read just a, a couple of weeks ago on vacation, uh, written by David Murray, he says, if the plan of redemption came before the creation, which it did, if the plan of redemption came before the creation, in Genesis 1 and 2, the Redeemer is creating the arena of his redemption. In other words, in Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus is creating the very place where his redemptive purposes are going to be fulfilled. You know, in all honesty, for a long, long time, you know, I've read Genesis chapter 1 and 2 numerous times, but for decades, I would say, I never saw Jesus there. It never occurred to me that, that Jesus was present, let alone the creator in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, where my mind usually went in Genesis 1 and 2 was, was like a creation evolution kind of debate. And so I've read books on creation and watched all kinds of videos and DVDs and, 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 and such, um, you know, talking about uh, creation and, and uh, how, how God is, you know, how creation is, is taught in scripture and not evolution. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing to pursue and to, to study, not at all. But if we think that that is the point, if we think that that is the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2, we're missing the point entirely. Genesis 1 and 2 is not about a creation versus evolution debate. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2 is about Jesus. It's about the Redeemer creating the arena of his own redemption. It's Jesus creating the very uh, arena into which he will enter as our rescuer and our redeemer. I hope you've got some bread and some juice or something that we can use for communion because I, I want to celebrate communion right now. I think it's a, I think it's a fitting way to, to respond to what we've been looking at in the scripture. Jesus as creator. Everything that Jesus created, he created to demonstrate his love and to demonstrate his redemptive purposes. He made grain. Jesus created grain, knowing that with a little uh, process, we would have bread. And then Jesus took bread and said, this bread, this is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus created grapes, knowing that with a little process, we could have juice or wine. And he said, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Everything Jesus created, he created to, to reveal his love, to reveal, to, to showcase his, his redemptive purposes. You know, he created lambs, knowing that he was coming to be the lamb of God. And so every time we drive down the road and we see lambs in, in a field, that should immediately remind us of the love of Jesus and of his redemptive plan. That's why he created them. Jesus created trees. Trees are amazing. Trees are incredible. And, uh, you know, this time of year, um, you know, deciduous trees, this is July 3rd today, so deciduous trees are out in full leaf. Beautiful. Trees are amazing. And um, you think about, you know, deciduous trees and you think about the interaction of light and, and the chlorophyll and the, the taking in of carbon dioxide and the production of life-sustaining oxygen. It's an incredible thing. And so Jesus creates trees knowing that he will hang on a tree, that he'll hang on a tree that he himself created. And that tree upon which he hangs will be life-giving. Would you take, would you take the bread and let's, let's eat together expressing our thanks to Jesus who created the world knowing how it would go, knowing that it would cause him pain. And before creation, he knew you and he knew me. And even knowing what was to come, that he would enter in willingly 
to be our rescuer, our redeemer at great cost. And he would give his body to be broken for us. Let us eat together this bread in thanksgiving and remembrance of Jesus. And let's take the cup and let's uh, drink together in thanksgiving to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God slaughtered before the creation. He created lambs. It's not like Jesus showed up on planet Earth and said, hey, what can I use as an illustration? Oh, there's a lamb, I'll use that as an illustration. No, he created lambs intentionally to reveal his love and to showcase his redemptive plan. He's the Lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the earth. He shed his blood for you and for me so that we can have forgiveness and life in his name. Let's drink together. Amen. So just in closing, two things. So this week, two things. Number one, read through Genesis chapters one through three in a slow and meditative fashion. And as you do, even before you read, ask God, Father, Son, and Spirit to help you as you read, to help you learn to adjust your focus to be able to see Jesus. As you read Genesis chapters one, two, and three, try and imagine what it would be like to create a world where everything that you create is an expression of your love and is a prop to showcase your redemptive purposes because that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So read those three chapters uh, slowly and in a meditative fashion. And secondly, Go for a walk. Maybe you go for a walk every day this week. Maybe you already do. Not on a treadmill inside, uh, although that's a good thing to do. Not in the mall uh, walking around. So let me just clarify, go for a walk outside, okay? And as you do, look at the things around you, at the things that Jesus has intentionally created to reveal his love and to reveal his redemptive purposes. And so look at trees, look at flowers. Look at the birds, uh, animals, water. Breathe in the air and let all of those things remind you that Jesus loves you and he's created all of these things to highlight, to show his redemptive plans. This is the arena of his redemption. It created it knowing that he would enter as our redeemer, as our rescuer. And so uh, we'll pick it up here uh, next week. And in fact, next week, we're gonna, we're gonna delve into Genesis chapter three a little bit because what, how you see Jesus in Genesis chapter three is incredible. All right, so I hope to see you then. God bless you.